0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Yokomasaki show. It's been quite some time, probably a couple years later since I have done an episode. Uh, first off to those out there who've been sticking with me since I've had a couple of breaks and time off uh, re- reviewing and reevaluating things I appreciate y'all for sticking around nonetheless, uh, I know it's been quite some time since I haven't done uh, an episode in a while that um, there's actually an episode that was supposed to have put out a few months back, but due to some technical situations, that didn't end up happening. And um, uh, that was actually a interview with my good friend, cosplayer and cam girl, Kitty Quinn. Uh, that episode was supposed to be up sometime that same month, but unfortunately some uh, technical situations happened that prevented that from happening. And I'm still reviewing in those things. So hopefully, if I can get everything right in that tech situation, um, that episode will be coming out. If not, we will probably have to redo that episode. So my apologies to Kitty Quinn for the delay on that situation. Um, I had a great time talking with her nonetheless. We had a good time talking, uh, getting to know about her and then the whole cosplay. We, we talked a lot about of you know the whole situation of cam girls becoming transitioning to doing cam work to now doing cosplay and some girls who are still cam girls but also uh, making a transition to be part of the cosplay community and actually that's what i want to talk about one of the topics today on this episode this is going to be a really long episode for y'all ladies and gentlemen because again i have a lot that i want to address in the situation there's going to be some music I'm going to be talking about at one point of it and another point it's going to be talking about um, a lot um, on some cases. By the time this episode is out, San Diego Comic-Con is happening as of right now. By the time this episode comes out, San Diego Comic-Con probably came and went. So I'll probably be talking a lot about what goes on in there. Um, of course, you can watch posts of the videos. Um, most of the videos that I've been watching is from uh, IMDB because uh, Kevin Smith, one of my favorite filmmakers, is responsible for doing interviews with most of the casting crews from some of the projects that are coming out that are either making their premiere on San Diego Comic-Con this year or they are addressing about the information from San Diego Comic-Con this year. Um, but one of the things I want to talk... I could talk about a lot of the stuff that comes out of San Diego Comic-Con. New seasons of shows I've already watched. Some shows that are ending. But one of the highlights I have to talk about is of Kevin himself. And that is... Uh, The J inside of Bob reboot And I have to address Review that myself about that So if you have not seen the trailer For that it's out now It's actually on Kevin Smith's official YouTube channel So you should definitely check that out But I have to address about that myself Um, And I have to bring it up Back all the way to 2004 2005 Now I'm going to be honest with you Like most people in my generation I started out watching the last of the viewers universe movies before getting into kevin smith um janocides bob strikes back was my first introduction like many of my generation watching kevin smith movies that was the first movie that came to my head when it first came out that related to kevin smith to be honest i never even put two and two together um like i said it was before the whole uh Marvel Cinematic Universe, before they started doing things that connected other movies to other movies in parallel universes. I would consider Kevin Smith the the mind who started that, because not a lot of movies at times actually um, related to the, um, each other in some cases. So when it came to uh, his movies, his movies were the first ones to do that. Um, So yeah, I started out, like many others, watching the last of his Skew movies in order to get up to his other stuff. And, of course, Jay and of Bob Strike Back was that movie. But then, I started backtracking to all his other films after that. You know, Mallrats then was after that. Then Dogma. uh, Then Chasing Amy. And then, of course, Ending with Clerks. Along with the TV cartoon as well. Which, coincidentally, was done by the same studio... Responsible for Kim Possible I just find it very odd That the same studio responsible for Kim Possible Is the same people responsible for the ill-fated Clerks cartoon um, And I see now I saw then After watching Clerks, the whole hype um, Kevin's movies have been known to have Somewhat of a revine taste Some people find them ridiculous Some people find them, you know, movies to be Not good On a high caliber of some cases to this day they still some people still find it i've actually there is a film that kevin did two of his most failed films i remember when he did outside of the views universe which deal with his two famous characters a character named jay and Ins- two characters named jay inside of bob jay playing by his good friend and childhood friend actor jason muse and inside of bob played by kevin himself uh that's the one thing that connects with the characters in his movies which is called the View-esque universe. Um, But he was also known for doing a lot of movies outside of that universe. Uh, um, uh, Jersey Girl, um, Zack and Mary Make a Porno, uh, Red State, uh, Cop Out. Unfortunately, some of those movies didn't do so well. I've actually known a few people who actually found one of Kevin's best movies is Red State. And to be honest, being a longtime fan of Kevin... That movie is a way of him saying, "I'm not taking Hollywood seriously anymore." That's what makes that movie bad. So anyone who likes Red State I personally felt like you could like Red State, but if you really think Red State is his best movie, you don't know shit about Kevin Smith. so but it wasn't just his movies that made me a fan of Kevin. It was his book uh tough tough shit. If you've ever read his books, he, I think he put out two books. One, His first one was called uh, Sign Up Bob Speaks But the last one he put out was called Tough Shit I have the digital copy of the book And the audio book Where Kevin reads it himself That book was an eye opener for me Uh, Him dealing with uh, A lot of times being bullied uh, Being different of his own intellect uh, A lot of times Growing up, his childhood um, His creativity Being flourished at some points of it from his family and his and people he's known all his life it was that book that really solidified me as a fan of kevin smith's and i feel like in some ways his life was entwined to things that i adore for example a lot of people know his one of his most popular podcasts is a series called uh originally called fat man on batman which is now called fat man beyond um, which is named in honor of one of his favorite comic book superheroes batman um kevin has also written for many comic books as well from batman to spider-man to daredevil daredevil being one of his most popular runs um and uh also at one point of it um kevin um uh has at many times of it um has admitted most times while he loves comic books and superheroes in general batman has always been his top favorite in general um, but he has an admiration for all superheroes and all comic books in general. Um, so when it came to um, his love of Batman, that's right there with myself. Um, his love of superhero superhero movies, as well as myself. He went to see the, the first Batman film during the premiere, which I envious him for. Um, he worked with Prince. He's had a very much admiration for Prince. Prince um, uh, hired him to do a film Uh, documentary uh (laughs) the the story of that is actually in his first uh video uh an evening with kevin smith if you watch that video he actually tells in full detail the story of prince how he met prince and prince worked with him Uh, which also is the connection of how he was able to get morris day in the time on JM and strike back spoiler alert for those who have never seen that movie and i can only hope that he reunites with them in the reboot trailer which again i'll get to in a minute um the other thing is as i mentioned before he mentioned he went to see the batman movie and there was at one point he had mentioned some uh his uh expression about tim burton's filming and tim burton basically made a negative comment about kevin smith which is kind of funny because tim burton being another one of my favorite directors but i won't uh, lie um His last two movies have been really much a lackluster. Dumbo and Mrs. Pellegrine have been really a disappointment for me in his movies, honestly. So uh, that's a whole other chapter I'll have to talk about. Um, uh, But when it comes to Kevin in general, um, he's one of my favorite filmmakers up top, right up there with Tarantino and Spielberg. So this movie trailer for... Um, his reboot film was something that was years in the making a lot of people, some people there was a 50 chance of people were like, you know what you're going back to that, you don't need to do that anymore, it's just stop it and then there's some people who are like, finally something that we can address is about something that's going on for years because Reboot, he has mentioned he's pitched it as the same movie technically in some cases as J.L. Silent Bob Strike Back, but there's a whole meaning meaning about it it's a little stab about reboots being overdone. A lot of messages in the film of it. Um, but of course, Kevin is known to having a lot of networking with many talented celebrities. And of course, like like his last movie, like with J.A. and about Strike Back, he has tons of cameos. Um, including two of celebrities we would never expected to even be in this movie. So that's awesome on the sense of it. Now, again... I will address to those in that sense of me. If you have not seen the trailer, go to that now. It's on this YouTube channel now. Uh, along with the fact that, excuse me, he's announced that he's going to be doing a road trip show with Jason um, to talk about the movie and premiere it at certain locations. Um, hopefully, if I can get things right, I will be hopefully attending the Detroit location, which is in October. So I'm hoping to go to that one. My My homeboy Dylan... From Arizona, will probably be going to an earlier screening in Phoenix, of course. And while I would love to go to that Phoenix show, it's barely able to go there. And as you can probably tell, I'm recording, I'm doing this podcast while I'm residing here in the shitty of Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> so that's just my two cents on that. But I don't need to talk about a rant about my hometown i'm here to talk about this trailer because again i own pretty much all of kevin's movies with the exception of two films um well with the exception of i think three films i don't own red state i don't own jersey girl um i don't own cop out i refuse to buy cop out and for two reasons one that is the only time movie the movie is just directed by kevin most of Kevin's films, he's written, edited, and directed himself. As long as, uh, and in some cases, even starred in. This is a movie that he was literally just hired to direct. Two, he, uh, his movies has always been known to have a production by his good friend, uh, Scott Mosher, who is also taking up directing. And I refuse, and this movie is the one time he, Scott does not direct uh, or produced in this film, and I refuse to do anything without that. His podcast empire wouldn't be what it is if it wasn't for him and Scott Mosier. Scott Mosier. So let's make that clear, especially for you older fans of Scott Mosier stuff of it. So that's another situation that's never that's not going to happen. And then the third and final nail in the coffin: Bruce Willis. Now Bruce is a talented. I love some of Bruce's movies. I will always be a John McClane fan. Not as big as uh, uh, Andy uh, as uh, not as big as Andy Samberg's character Jack in Brooklyn Nine Nine, but I am a fan of mostly Bruce's diehard movies, and Bruce's talent is amazing is is awesome in some cases as well. But when it comes to the man behind those roles, I have heard many times by other actors or some people who work with him that he can be known to be prone to be a dick, and. When it's it's always that all oh, catchphrase a lot of people have said that you sometimes should never meet your heroes. When Kevin got to um uh, opportunity to first meet Bruce, it was when he was casted uh he was good friends with Len Wiseman, who I believe was the director of Lifria Die Hard, and he was given an opportunity to make a small cameo cast appearance as a uh nerd hacker named Warlock, who was friends with Justin Wong's Long's character which is also what started him and Justin Long to become good friends to working together. Um, at the uh, On his, uh, three, uh, uh, his third uh, sequel of his um, evening uh, movies, he talks about that experience, working on that movie and getting to meet Bruce to the point Bruce offered to work with him. Bruce is from New Jersey, just like Kevin is. So he's a hometown hero to Kevin. It wasn't until they worked together in Cop Out that kevin saw bruce's true colors and kevin talks about that i believe in his movie i believe it was in uh one of his uh specials i believe it was um too fat to fly he talks about the full detail experience of his unfortunate relationship with uh bruce working that movie and i look at it like this if you are a dick to anyone i respect in a sense of it and they look up at you in the highest respect honor you lose a lot of my respect and that's what it was with Bruce. There will be a couple of films I'll probably still see of Bruce. To some cases, if there's another Die Hard movie that's actually good, I'll probably see that in a sense of it. But I don't have to like the person. There's a lot of actors who are like that. That people will love their character, but they'll throw it in the dick. A perfect example for me is um, Adam Baldwin. Now, Adam Baldwin, I love two of the most most two recognized roles is Jane Cobb from Firefly. And his role in Chuck. Those are most memorable roles he's done. I really wasn't a fan of The Last Ship, which was his last performance in. But I'm not going to lie, Adam Baldwin is known to be a dick, especially when it comes to politics. He is so Republican, it's not even funny. Uh, another example is John Voigt. John Voigt's been known to play a lot of recognized roles, but you can understand why his relationship with his daughter, Angelina Jolie, is a little bit disdained. Well, Angelina is probably one of those type of people. And again, it's politics. That's why I don't like to talk about politics, because most of the times when it comes to politics, a lot of conflicts happens. Now, I at least have two friends out of all the thousands of friends I have who are Republican supporters in the case of it, but we've never gone to the point where we have conflicts with each other when it comes to that sense of it, especially when it comes to racism. They've at least had the integrity to say, look, I respect your you know, I'm not a racist. And they proved that time and time again on that sense of it. But that's a whole different subject. I'll probably talk about that another time as well. But the main point is is there are some people who are talented in what they do and their characters are motivated. But just because you love the character doesn't mean you have to like the person who plays them. That's the case. And that's what it was for people like Adam Baldwin and Bruce Willis. I love John McClane, but I don't have to like Bruce Willis. I really don't. And to know his relationship as the strain with Kevin Smith because of how he treated Kevin on Cop Out broke Kevin's heart. And I feel bad more for Kevin on that sense of it. So that's why I will not cop- purchase Cop Out. Plus, I heard it was a dumb movie anyways. I, I watched the movie and it was just a really bore fest. So that's my opinion on Cop Out. Um, not much of a scary person, movie person, so Red State was never interesting for me. And I knew the story behind it because I watched a lot of interviews that Kevin did for that movie. So that movie is in that sense of it. However, I don't own Tusk and Yoga Hosers yet. And I've seen both of those movies and those are right up there as Ali. So I will be getting those eventually. Um, but when it comes to Jay Sound of Bob Reboot, that movie means a more importance because it's almost like, I personally feel this movie is a celebration of the years that Kevin has done his view movies for the fans out there to know of all the things he was able to do and and what he was able to accomplish and bring into this movie is a a testament itself he was he was limited to what he was able to do because most of the times his movies he films in new jersey and since relocating to la where he resides now he was able to do what he could being able to film it in new orleans and that's a testament itself with the people he was able to work with the crew and the cast he was able to work with the people who are in this movie is just astounding like For example, a lot of people know Kevin has done a couple of directing guest role uh, performances in uh, both the CW's Flash and Supergirl because he was a fan. And both the executives at CW knows how much of a fan he is and his legacy in comic books that they thought it was a perfect idea for him to direct a few episodes. So he's sort of built a friendship and a respect with a lot of the cast on those shows, especially Flash and Supergirl and to know that some of the stars of both of those shows have so much respect for him that they're willing to take time out of their day to help him out in some cases is a testament itself um and this in the case being melissa benoist our very own last daughter of krypton is in this movie that's a high caliber uh which is really awesome to see uh so yeah supergirl is in this movie and even in her Instagram, it shows how much she was a fan of Kevin. So it's really awesome to see that. Um, uh, Val Kilmer being in this movie is also another add-on to the plus of it. Again, not going to too much to spoil the territory, but he is in the film, so it's really awesome to see that. Um, a lot of other celebrities in this films have people he's worked with who you wouldn't expect to see in years. You know, Jason Lee, we knew he was going to be in this. Um, Brent, yeah. Uh, 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 Justin Long, as I mentioned before, um, Joe Mantell at Jello. I remembered him saying two years ago uh, at San Diego Comic Con when he was promoting his fashion line Death Sades that Clerks was one of his favorite movies back in the day, it surprised the hell out of Kevin. So he and he said to himself like and Kevin was like, "If you're going to be in any other universe, what it would be?" And Joe literally looked at Kevin's like, "I want to be in yours." So Joe is in the movie, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, Craig Robinson. Who i'm pretty sure uh uh kevin a lot of people remember kevin had him in uh zach and mary uh is in the movie um uh, uh shannon elizabeth who has not acted in years especially after uh, american reunion having a small part in american reunion is back as justice in this movie um uh, we have a lot uh, there's so many other cameos However, I will say, out of all the cameos that make the biggest difference, a lot of people, synonymously, who are longtime Kevin fans, Kevin Smith, Smith fans, know that the biggest connection that Kevin has is with actor Ben Affleck. Now we've known for years that there, since I think uh, Clerks Two was the last time Kevin and Ben had a relationship of working together. Ben had a small cameo in The Clerks 2 as a customer. After that movie, we kind of knew, like, from right then on, they would come to a point they would disdain themselves. But apparently, during a junket for one of Ben's movies that he was producing for Netflix, someone mentioned about the reboot. And that sparked off a situation in which Kevin and Ben reunited. So, to see Holden McGroin a character that was Ben played years ago in Chasing Amy, one of his early movies that he did with Kevin, is so awesome to see, and it's that's, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the, the solidification for us saying, now it feels like a Kevin Smith movie, because not gonna lie, most of the other movies that Ben that Ke- Ben is not in, that Kevin's done, that lackluster of Affleck, other than mention of Affleck, didn't feel like a Kevin Smith movie um Ever since I've seen small rats where he played Shannon, or uh, his role, uh, his small part in, um, like I said, in his cameo in Clerks 2, uh, even his role, small cameo as both Holden McGroin and his a parody of himself filming uh, Goodwill Will Hunting 2, uh, complete with blonde uh, frosted tips in uh, Shane and Silent Bob Strike Back, you know, in those movies. It feels like a Kevin Smith movie with Affleck involved. So now that Affleck is in this movie confirmed, even if it's a small part, is awesome to see. So that now it feels like a Kevin Smith movie. So I'm excited for this film. I really am, and you bet your bottom dollar I'm going to see it. So, um, so that's the it's the one trailer I will say on the sense of it. I love the fact that Kevin's basically uh, saying in the sense with this movie, hey it's the same script to sign up Bob strike back, but a few things have changed to it to make it more modern for today. That's what I love about that film. A lot of people don't like because of that sense of it for this movie, but I like that in that sense for this movie. So it's really cool to see that. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, again, I don't know if I'll be able to go to the roadshow premiere. I'm hoping that I can, by the time this episode comes out, if I can score the tickets in that sense of it. But, um, if not, I will most likely see the movie regardless outside of it. And if I don't get to see it in theaters, you, I, I, I already know I'm going to buy it. So that's definitely going to happen. Um, So I'm looking forward to it. Of course, you know, I'm hoping that they do give some dedication to two of the stars who are in Strike Back, who are, of course, passed away. And that's Carrie Fisher and George Carlin. Uh, both of them were in Strike Back, and of course both of them have passed recently. Uh, George playing a hitchhiker in the film and uh, Carrie playing a, a nun who basically gives them a ride. So let's hope that integrity is given in spirit in this movie. And if I'm correct, Carlin has done a couple of roles in Kevin's movies other than, I think, Strike Back. He also did Dogma. He was a, a preacher at... a. Uh, 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 in uh dogma so yeah um but yeah that movie is already on my definite list of it and like i said there's tons of other movies that have been announced since then um when it comes to dvd release movies in a sense of it the only one in my mind right now is batman hush now um a lot of you guys might not know this but i have started growing my collection of batman animated films or DC animated films, to be precise, because there are a few films that do pertain to Batman in relation, but not fully in Batman' concession For example, Teen Titans, The Judas Contract, Justice League versus Teen Titans. So um, I do have a few films of it. The last one I pur- purchased was um, uh, was actually Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was actually a good movie. And I will tell you guys this. Don't let the Nickelodeon ownership fool you. This is straight adult. It's not fully adult, but it's not children's relating movie. So while there's no sexual or profanity in the film, the violence in the film is right up there as no typical than most other uh, Batman movies. So don't think it is like literally There's a, there's some blood in this movie. And if you know any better... Most Ninja Turtle, many, no, there's no Ninja Turtle movie live action or animated that has ever dealt with blood, and there's blood in this movie, so I will say that for a fact. So don't let the Nickelodeon ownership fool you, because <laughs> it fooled me for a moment at one point, and while, of course, Kevin Conroy isn't in this film, um, Troy Baker doesn't do a bad job fulfilling the role of Batman, so I can understand that, because I mean, You have to understand how many years Kevin has done Batman for years. He will always be the Batman that we know, but it makes sense. Now, I don't know. I've only seen bits and pieces for the trailer for Hush, but I've already invested because I own the book. My only situation on the book is there's one scene in the book that I feel may not be in the movie. Um... And this is spoiler alert territory for those out there who have not seen the book, read the book, or uh, in the sense of it. In the book, there's a scene where Batman is fighting a man who's supposed to be Hush, the main villain. And it turns out, at first, that he reveals himself to be Jason Todd, uh, a.k.a. Red Matt, Red Hood. And while Batman's fighting him, he's saying all these things about Jace Jason saying all these things about his life with Batman until he makes one mistake one of the memories he mentions Bruce mentions that never happened or he happened but it wasn't his fault and then Bruce ends up taking advantage of that situation and starts beating the hell out of this Jason until we find out that it's not Jason at all and by the end of the fight it turns out that guy isn't Jason actually or Hush it's actually Clayface now for those out there who don't knowing my history on Batman villains, I, I have a love-hatred for some of the villains. Um, Joker, still my favorite villain of all time. Harley Quinn's my favorite female villain. But at the same time, so is Poison Ivy and Catwoman. I love all the, the Gotham City Sirens. Um, you know, Red Claw, I think, will be a great villain in the sense of it. Bane, I think he's amazing. Penguin and Riddler are still great, comical or not. Um... You know, everyone from Calendar Man to Clock King, they all bring something to the table in their rogues gallery. But I think Batman's villains gallery is the most unique in a sense of it. So there are many of Batman's villains I have a very much liking for, except one particular villain, and that is Clayface. I feel in the comic book lore, they always have to have a supervillain that has the ability to change their appearance. In Marvel's case, it's the Chameleon. It's that character. He is an alien-slash-type humanoid mutant who has the ability to change his appearance. In Spider-Man universe, it's the Chameleon, but in the X-Men universe, it's a character named Morph. And if you're familiar with the 90s cartoon, you should know who Morph is, but if not, he was a character who started out as a hero in the X-Men comic book or cartoon lore, but in the cartoon lore, he ends up becoming a villain by some random circumstances. And that's the part of it that makes me upset in the sense of it. Oh, Mystique also. Let's not forget Mystique is also another one. But I like Mystique. I think Mystique's one of those shapeshifters cases about it i don't know i guess female shapeshifters are better for me than male shapeshifters i don't know what it is it's just that feeling like for batman beyond i loved ink i think ink was an amazing character i love her stories uh whether it was the one with her daughter or the one with the guy who was obsessed with her i think those were amazing stories i loved those episodes i hated the fact that her character has had many attempts to uh be eliminated per se, but on some cases, I do love her character. I, I find her character to be very fascinating. However, Clayface, on the other hand, I don't. Um, ever since the first episode of the animated series, uh, Feet of Clay, I hated him. And even Ron Perlman's amazing performance can't shadow the fact that I hate this character. I really do. And then, I believe there was an episode in the animated series, I believe it's called The Crying Game, or Child is a Crying, where Clayface creates this child in the form of a, a, a young girl that Tim Drake Robbins ends up having a fascination for. And when she finds out that she's part of Clayface um, as a scout for, her when, uh, for Clayface when he was defeated by Batman and she sacrifices herself to save Tim, that made me, that sunk my heart even more. And that made me hate him even more of a character. Because I'm like... This girl was nothing more than a fabrication by Clayface, and Tim Drake had feelings for her. By the end of the episode, when Clayface is finally defeated and, and, and is uh, and confined, the Commissioner Gordon's like, you know, he's basically saying, charge him for theft and robbery, and then secretly, Tim Drake whispers under his breath, and also for murder. That's why I'm just like, I-, I feel you, Tim. I really do. So... The only time... And I've never liked any variation of Clayface. Even though Ink is technically a variation of Clayface, I like Ink more than Clayface. I never liked the, the Batman's version of Clayface. The Birds of Prey live action of Clayface was a joke. And even Falseface from the 60s Batman television series was a dumb character. So any variation of Clayface in that sense of it, in the Batman lore, I just found him a terrible character. I hated him. I hated him in the video games. I hated him in the cartoons. I didn't even like the fact that in the comics they turned him into a good guy controlled by Batman. Um, in the Batman White Knight comic book, his character was used as a means to enslave the villains courtesy of a new villain named the Neo Jerker. And I won't give away that much because I need everybody to read that comic because it's a really good comic. Sean Murray does, Murphy does an amazing job with that book and i can't wait for the sequel um because white knight is such a good story and i don't want to give that away and i'm hoping they make a movie out of that soon um but to be more precise when it comes to um uh that character i just always had a hatred for that character so when it comes to clayface i never liked clayface ever i never liked any variation of clayface I never liked any media version of Clayface. I never liked any performance of Clayface. If there was a Batman film, and I hope that never happens, knock on wood, that there was a Batman movie and the villain was Clayface, that would probably be the only Batman movie I will never see because I just find him a terrible character. I find him a terrible villain. Yet, I believe a lot of fans believe he's one of the coolest villains. And I just don't understand that. It's my unbiased opinion, as I believe the internet is calling it. Um... Aside from Clayface, though, on a sense of it, um, that's the only scene in Batman the Cush comic that I believe would probably not be in the animated film. Because how I've seen some of the clips in the trailer makes it look that he's not in the movie. Now, I'm pretty sure Troy Baker will be playing Batman again in this animated film. It'd be surprising if they got Kevin, but I wouldn't be surprised. So, I'm still looking forward to it, nonetheless, because it's one of the most recognized books in Batman history. On the fact that the entire, like, the entire Rogue's Gallery of Batman villains is in one book. And of course, another match between Batman versus Superman is always a good deal. (laughs) So, that's what I love on that sense of it. So, that's one trailer for one movie that's coming to the DVD that I'm looking forward to. Um,. But I do also have uh, some other questions on Sense with San Diego Comic-Con. Um, one, for example, uh, a lot of people have probably read about this recently or been seeing about it recently since it, by the time this episode comes out this week of weekend. Um, recently, Entertainment Tonight, as I mentioned before, is doing live coverage of San Diego Comic-Con, uh, talking with cast and crews for films, shows, uh, projects that are coming out uh, that pertain to the entertainment industry. So, of course, they're going to take the opportunity to talk about things at Comic-Con that many fans who have never been to Comic-Con before wonder an the experience of the big trends. And this year, they decided to talk a little bit about cosplay. Now, for those out there who uh, know on my work as a photographer, I have worked and have become friends with many, many photographers. I've had some relationship friendship with my photographer, with cosplayers that are still to this day that's gone on longer than for four to five years. And there are some cosplayers, unfortunately, that I have no longer have that much respect for who, or who have no respect for my work anymore in that sense of it. And it, it's part of the job. It's But my mentality, it makes it harder for me based on my mental Ill health. It only makes it harder for me because, first off, you never want to lose a friend. No matter what your actions are, you never want to lose a friendship. And it's one of the things in my business as a professional, that's the hard part about it. It's hard to not... Be a friend to a client in that sense of it, no matter what you're shooting. Um, this year, uh, as many of you know, I went to Colossacon again. This will be the ninth, tenth year I've gone, I believe, to Colossacon. Um I've gone for the last seven, eight years, with the exception of two years I think I have gone. And that was because one year I was in Arizona, I believe. That was the one year I didn't go, was because I was in Arizona and then the other year, I believe it was because I was not in Ohio at all. I believe it was because I was in Florida uh, during that time. Because uh, one year I was in Florida because I was working during the summer at Walt Disney World, and then another year I was in Arizona for seven months with my mother during the summertime. We basically spent our summer <laughs> in Arizona from from uh, from February all the way till that December till the mid of summer end of summer so in a way we spent our summer vacation in Arizona and I still miss it so for all my Arizona fans out there who are listening trust me I miss you guys so much uh and in time I will be back I will um but anyways when it comes to uh Arizona when it comes to Colossacon it's been one of the cons I've gone to every year um it was the second con that i've gone to after a trail of cons i've gone for one year the first time was a local convention i go to called anna marathon which is located in bowling green ohio at bgsu Uh, excuse me then another con i used to go to in columbus was a convention called ohio con but due to some personal issues that i've had uh i stopped going to ohio con um there may be a chance based on what i'm hearing there's a lot of improvements this year since this year so maybe it comes to a point i may return it's a maybe i can't guarantee that um by the time this episode is up uh the only conventions i'm considering going this year uh is yomacon which is a convention in detroit or dearborn whichever one it is but it's in michigan and it happens within the october month mid-halloween and then, of course, uh, and then another con that's actually happening, I believe, in Maryland uh, called Katsukan. Uh, Katsukan, I really hope to go to. I can't guarantee that. But it's mostly because the location of Katsukan's uh, hotel, Grand Rapid Hotel, is amazing. There's a lot of locations, a lot of lighting, natural lighting, a lot of beautiful sceneries that happen in Katsukan that makes it beautiful to shoot at. Um one of the reasons why Yomacon is a sense for me is because most of the only conventions I've gone to is Colossacon, and it's a basically a summer convention, so 90% of the cosplayers there are wearing uh, swimsuit-oriented costumes. So in a way, I haven't really experienced shooting cosplayers in full costumes except like minimal conventions, like BashCon, which two or three cosplayers are in, or... Um, uh, marathon, and that's if they're good costumes i get to see so when it comes to uh um comic was well, so when it comes to conventions i haven't really experienced a full convention during the winter or springtime that deals with full costume cosplayers and that's only because most of them are either very faint in colossicon or they're not in conventions that i go to most of the time So that's why YomaCon has to be one that I definitely want to go to, because I really want to experience that uh, convention going there, seeing and experiencing that, and shooting uh, costumes that are actually decent there. Um, While there are people who do wear costumes fully clothed at ColossalCon, the spacing at ColossalCon is very limited. You have to literally go outside the front area in the spring area or waterfall bridge area to experience good locations to shoot and they're even crowded themselves so it's really hard to find a location at colossicon outside or inside to shoot fully covered stuff i tried last year at least with two costumes and it was hard enough for me to do that so i stuck with mostly water park costumes with people in swimsuits and there's nothing wrong with people in swimsuits it's a very good pleaser because um especially when it comes to cosplayers who are in swimsuits from all shapes and sizes it's a good way to show their confidence in that sense of it and I have nothing wrong with that but I just feel like when you're shooting swimsuit costumes only you can't really consider yourself serious as a cosplayer photographer and I haven't reached that that lineage yet so I feel like I need to do this and the only way that I feel people will take me seriously in the cosplay photography is if I do more clothed shoots in that sense of clothed costume shoots. Now, I've done fashion shoots outside of cosplay, fashion, boudoir, suits, which is fine, you know, boudoir for the people out there, intimate and sensations, and then of course clothes shoots in general for fashion stuff, and I've done those completely fine. Early in my career, fashion cos- fashion shoots were not really my thing. I wanted to stick with doing boudoir photography because of the fact that for years, I've mentioned this before many times before, that I love helping women who i mostly should i only shoot in the sense of it sorry for guys that i i like to be the confidence booster for women of all shapes and sizes i want women to always feel confident in them themselves and when it came to boot war photography what better way to show that a woman can be intimate no matter what she looks like in that sense of it and i've shot with many women in that sense uh when it comes to that i've shot curvaceous women i've shot women who are very petite very small slim women athletic women so i've shot with many shapes and sizes of women um to a extent but when it comes to um fashion i never really did that until recently the last three years now i've been doing it and i realized you know what it's best to show women that you have an opportunity to tell them even if you don't take off your clothes and you don't feel comfortable shooting me with less clothes on i can still make you look very attractive in the work that I do. The recent work I just shot with was a a woman by the name of Shelby Garcia. And, uh, she's a fitness instructor. And she also was a body built, um, a, um, I believe it's a beach body instructor or a beach body counselor for a company, beach body, you know, people behind insanity workout and such like that. And she's never modeled before. And she's worked with me and one other photographer. And we recently did a fashion and a boudoir shoot and she loves it. And I had a good time shooting with her. She, we came up with the ideas, the outfits, and she still looks incredible. And you probably see my work of her on my Instagram and my Twitter if you follow me on either of those. You'll probably see the work that I've done with her. So there's nothing wrong with fashion shoots. None for me. As long as it's the concept that I can look for in a sense that works for me. But when it comes to cosplay, I'm limited only because of the fact of what I can do. It's not because I don't want to shoot clothed cosplays. It's because I can't find if i'm gonna shoot cosplayers who are good in their outfits i want to make sure that it's good stuff but at the same time it's not a lot of people there and there's not a lot of spacing there i've seen plenty of good cosplayers fully clothed at colossicon but i'm very limited to location it's hard to find a spot unless you rent out a room in that panel room uh in colossicon to shoot at and only one photographer i believe did that they literally had a room they reserved to shoot cosplayers in and i don't like to be that type of person to say hey i have a backdrop i have a camera let's shoot i don't want to make my work look like a studio and many of you people have noticed that when i shoot my stuff i don't like to shoot in one backdrop location i like to use my environment that's my one thing takeaway as a photographer i could get a studio if i want to like any other professional in fact girl i'm talking to actually has a studio of her own in detroit And she's a photographer herself. But at the same time, her work is mostly infants, children, family stuff. And it makes sense because you don't want to just shoot. If you don't want to shoot at location, you want to just shoot there. But for me, I'm the type of guy that's like, hey, if there's a location that looks beautiful that you can't get in a backdrop, I can take a picture there. So that's my thing when it comes to shooting uh, location, location, location that's my whole thing when it comes to me shooting i have a backdrop i just don't like to use it all the time (laughs) and most photographers respect me for that in some cases and there are some photographers who are like you know you can't do that all the time but it's it's a fighting battle and that's the same thing with cosplay it's hard for me to find location for cosplayers when you only have them for the moment in a location that's packed like a freaking sardine can at a convention and if you've ever been to an anime or comic book convention, you know some of those locations are very limited to find, to have spacing, and you only have a little bit of time to work with those people in that sense of it. So yeah, that's the whole thing when it comes to cosplay. But derogatory for my point, their ET decided to document about that, and they worked with, um, they talked with four cosplayers. I won't give up their names, out of respect, who basically gave information about the world of cosplay. Unfortunately, this is a mass media mogul company, E.T., Entertainment Tonight. They are a mass production of press. And unfortunately, when it comes to the press, and I'm not going to say I agree with our current president, but sometimes they do tend to twist words around and people and auditory around on annotation. And they made it look in this documentary as I watched some of it. I couldn't even watch the whole thing because I just saw the beginning of it and I just knew from right then it was going to go it was going to be going downhill. Um, While the cosplayers they interviewed were incredible, talented people, they made the accusation that most cosplayers who are making it bad on themselves are what we call in this field the lewd cosplayers. Now, if you ever heard the word lewd in cosplay community, it's mostly those cosplayers in that sense of it who are the sexualized cosplayers who either sexualize in costume of their looks of characters for example um one of my uh friends um golden angel cosplay uh she has done a cosplay of a character from an anime called fairy tale and the character's name is Lucy now Lucy in the cost in the cartoon uh, is is a very very attractive girl but never in the cartoon have you ever seen her sexualized in any way there has been fan service, but never in a sexualized way. So when a character is seen to be attractive in the sense of it for cosplayers, sometimes cosplayers tend to sexualize that character, and they do that by having that character in an alternate outfit that would make them seem more risqué, uh, and in a, whether it's with lingerie, implied outfits or sexualized attire in locations. And that's what blue cosplayers are. And they're more featured on the sense of it where they're in their body and posing in some cases. Um, perfect example. A lot of people out there know my one of my favorite animes is Tenchi Muyo. Now, fan service, yes, aside, Tenchi Muyo doesn't go all the way to the brink point of nudity. Well, I take that back. The first series did have a lot of nudity. But if you watch the Tsunami version, there was not nudity. It was edited out. But uh, you wouldn't expect to see Really in Tenchi Muyo A character of uh, in, for, To put it bluntly You would probably see Ryoko pantsless You would probably see Ryoko topless But you would never see Ryoko in lingerie Looking like a Victoria's Secret model But there have been cosplayers Women who have dressed as that character Wearing that attire The sexiest I remember at one point in an episode of Tenchi was, I believe in Muyo, Ryoko is wearing uh, this green and pink attire, which looks like she's wearing a skirt, and she's showing a lot of leg, and she's wearing a top, but it looks like a dress, but in a way it's actually just an outfit, it's an outfit itself, but she's showing a lot of leg. Uh, I have not seen anyone do that outfit except two or three people, and those are years ago, like 20 years ago, girls are doing that. But I've never seen anybody do that outfit now. But honestly I've never remember a moment Ryoko has ever been in an episode of Tenchi Muyo wearing Victoria's Secret underwear. Or underwear in general. (laughs) I've seen manga of Ryoko wearing like something other than a t-shirt and panties. But I've never seen Ryoko like wear full on lingerie stockings the whole nine yards of that sense of it. But there are girls who cosplay that character. Another example. Tracer from Overwatch, while she has not been a sexualized character, she has been considered an attractive character. Jessica Negri, one of my favorite cosplayers and one of the most recognized cosplayers in the community, has done several outfits where Tracer is wearing everything from a mini bikini to a maid's costume. Well, I take that back. Meg Turney did that, actually, the maid's version, maid costume version of uh, Tracer, but with her trademark hair, but, you know, sexy outfits in that sense of it. So it's more sexualized. Another example I've seen actually in the documentary itself, um, they showed pictures of Yaya Han and Erica Fett, two well known cosplayers, doing very version costumes in some cases where they're showing a lot of cleavage, a lot of uh, backsides. Um, one of the outfits in particular, um, is Erica Fett doing a boudoir cosplay version of uh, Daphne from Scooby Doo. Now, Daphne, we all know who's the attractive, who is one of the. Uh, Members of the show, um, we've never seen her wear anything sexy. Velma or Daphne has never worn anything sexy, not even to the live-action movie extent. But people like Erica Fett and Vic Senis, uh i believe her name is Vixenis, i believe her name is—and uh, several other cosplayers have done uh, Amaranth. I believe is another one who have done sexy versions of Daphne, wearing nothing but lingerie. In that same character. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what Luke Cosplay is. Now, there are reasons behind that. Unfortunately, in the documentary, they made it seem it was frowned upon. That's my problem. And a lot of cosplayers who have mentioned it in a sense of it, people like Lux Stardust, Sony Everlynn, Holly Wolf, who I'm also good friends with, have made it state that it's one sided with this in the cosplay community in that documentary. And that's the thing that we should not frown upon. That's my problem with the documentary. There's nothing wrong with being sexy in a case of outfit endurance of it. I look at it in three ways. One of them, confidence. Many of these women, you would never see wearing stuff like this in a normal day basis. They're mostly wearing sweats, jeans, pant, t-shirts and pants, normal stuff that most normal people would wear. But in this photo shoot, they can open up their sexuality and their confidence in these outfits most times they don't feel they feel insecure they'll tell you as soon as you compliment them everyone from my good friend uh stevens who's a very well talented photographer herself who's gone into modeling and cosplaying herself to um uh one of my close good friends uh a girl named uh red fox cosplay who's never who's over sexualized a lot of her stuff of it um but didn't really take off until recently they all have that sort of little bit of an insecurity like yeah I, I get a lot of people telling me i look attractive but i don't see it but i'm gonna show it anyways and that's the thing there are some women who know they're sexy like thank you i, I appreciate that i've worked hard on this body and that's another uh, so that's what brings me to the second thing a lot of fitness friends men, women like ireland reed holly wolf amaranath They'll show you that they go to the gym day in and day out, work their butts off to get that body. They don't naturally have that look. There are a few cosplayers, lewd cosplayers, who have the lucky genetics to look like they do. But there are a few, there are many cosplayers I have known for years, especially the loot ones, who have worked their butts off in the gym to attain those look, those physiques that many people fans find interesting pervs find oogling <laughs> but at the same time it's not like they just naturally were able to look like that there are a few that naturally who have been able to do it and they've been blessed with those genetics but there are tons of women i have known who have worked their butts off no different than every other supermodel in the industry of basic photography and modeling industry just no different than them don't think for a second just because you're a cosplayer and between a cosplayer and a model ain't the same don't think that's not true they have to deal with body issues and deal with physical aspects no different than each other the only difference is when it comes to the modeling industry you don't get to do what you want in the creativity of your look except unless you have that gift that they see it whereas in the cosplay community it's whatever you want it to be in the, in the model in particular, you can't say, I want to look like Vicky Vale in Batman with how I look in my physical attributes. You don't get to do that. But in the cosplay community, you can. If you want to say in the cosplay community, I want to do a sexy version of Sakuya from Street Fighter, the girl who is uh, not even that much sexualized in photos or video, in a video game, she's considered more of the cute factor, but you sexualize her in a photo shoot. If you want to do that, if you're a cosplayer, you could do that. You can't do that in the modeling industry. That's the difference. Plus a lot more in the preference of how you look is more defined maximum in the modeling industry compared to the cosplay industry. That's why a lot of models, a lot of cosplayers who also model on the side of it thinks it's a lot more easier when it's cosplaying than doing modeling. If, I have been fortunate enough to know a lot of few models who are more cosplayers than models because of the fact that they deal with a lot more heavy stuff in the industry as a model and less of it in the industry. Um, Recently, I met Masha uh, Models. She goes by Masha Models or Masha Cosplays. And she's always loved cosplay. And recently, for the last two years, she's now started growing her internet success through her cosplay. And she's told me herself... In the modeling industry, it's a lot harder. She still deals with the same situations, body images, a lot of criticisms and other things like that. But at the same time, when it comes to the cosplay community, she only deals with less, more complimentary and more of the fact of creativity. Like in the modeling industry, she couldn't dress up as a character from Super Mario Brothers and do it in a sexy way. Whereas in in the cosplay community, no one's judging you on that except the people who don't like that type of cosplay. So, that's the one thing about it that she has a lot of admiration for. So, when it comes to cosplaying the model community, from what I've observed, and like I said, I could be wrong about all of this, but from what I've observed, that seems like more in a sense of it. Um, the third thing, again, is more on the judgment ends of that kind of it. Sometimes, a lot of these cosplayers and models have a lot of mental health issues, I've noticed. And it's sometimes the only way that they can get attention not getting attention i won't i don't want to say that because that would make it seem like that they're being selfish that's not true more or less they're in the sense of uh motivation honestly because they want to inspire other people who are into it there are many women out there who don't have the ability to go out and do that and there are some cosplayers like you know if i did it you can do it too and that's what it comes to that point of it. And their love of that admiration and that sense of it. And they love getting that attention from people. They love, not love getting attention, but they love getting the reaction of people who are getting into the industry themselves because of the inspiration that they give them. Anyone wants to do that. Whether you're a lewd photographer or a basic photographer or a basic cosplayer or a lewd cosplayer. A lot of people in that sense of it. And it works both ways in that sense of it. So how I feel about it, in that sense of cosplayers, in this perspective, when it comes to that documentary in particular, I feel they one-sided it. And I've only known, from what I watched, one cosplayer who basically felt bad about the way they were articulated. But at the same time, she still was honored for the fact that they documented it. Now, again, uh, there are a few cosplayers out there who started out doing generic stuff at it and then they've transcended to more of the loot department. For example, uh, I believe there's a cosplayer named Anna Faith. She was known for being an impersonator uh, looking naturally similar to Anna from Disney's Frozen. And so she's got so popular because of it, she's even cosplayed the character. But it was that alone significance that she decided, well, I look like the character and I always wanted to get into cosplay, so I'll get into it. So she's gotten into it. And most times, she's only dressed as that character. Um, And for the last several years, she's even transcended to doing more on that cosplay. So recently, she's been doing outside of that costume to more looter stuff. Now, from what I've known and from what I've seen, and I don't know if it's true or not, I don't think she's ever done a lewd version of that Disney character. So if you're expecting to see a picture of her dressed as Anna in blue lingerie it's not gonna happen (laughs) however she has gone to the point she's done a couple of lewd stuff herself now in the sense of her with that situation the sense of it that's another example of why not many cosplayers should judge normal cosplayers should judge lewd ones. cosplayers in the sense of it they are in the same department I look at them no different from each other they all have one thing in common Their admiration and love of what we all love television, comic books, TV shows, cartoons, video games, movies, certain fan bases of uh franchises and things like that that we all love, and they're showing their admiration of it, they're just going a further step of it. Um, you know, I've seen so many people who've done versions in the sense of it of uh, you know, sexified no different than it's i feel it no different than people judging the difference between a guy dressed as a ninja turtle and a girl wearing a halloween costume of a sexy ninja turtle it's no different what gives her the right what gives the guy in the regular ninja turtle costume the right to judge that girl wearing a sexy version of the ninja turtle costume she loves the character too if that's her way of wanting to dress like that that's her way of dressing it It makes her feel confident makes her shows her maturation and love for the character if it makes her any less different a fan that's because of that way she is the way it is in that sense of it then let that that's your opinion but keep that to yourself i think and i feel the cosplay community in documentaries like the one et posted and edited is a way of saying we look down upon those people who do that for patreon and stuff like that Sometimes those costumes even if they're wearing less clothing, sometimes it's not cheap. I know for experience me being trying to get into cosplay at one point of it, some of that stuff's not cheap. I've known a couple of wigs to be over $100. Believe you me. Sometimes I've known a couple of people to pay almost up to 700 to up to a grand to try to get a trip to California and San Diego Comic-Con for hotel accommodations, food, plane tickets, bus tickets to go all the way down there and to have enough to pay for their equipment and stuff in their outfits and they could be wearing as less than nothing than a mask a wig a, a weapon and a bikini and still have to pay that much just to our convention these are not cheap things people you have to understand that and take a consideration into that so when it comes to especially the female cosplayers in the lewd department a sense of it i respect them as much as i respect the cosplayers normal tire ones because they're still putting in the same grind and work as they do. I'm working with a cosplayer personally to help her get a outfit of um of a character of um from X-Men. One of her most recognized characters she's known for doing in X-Men most of the time is Jean Grey. She even went to the Dark Phoenix premiere dressed as Jean Grey. Now she has done very much risqué outfits in certain cases and non cosplay risqué stuff as well. But she's always put in work with her stuff. And from what I, it seems like uh me helping her financially to help the outfit to go in exchange to shooting with her, most of the outfits that she's doing well, cost up to 500 to 600. dollars And she's wearing pretty much nothing different than like a bikini like outfit with thigh highs. But how much work and that has to go in to put in for all the stuff she has to get in those outfits is not cheap ladies and gentlemen which is why i understand if you have to go so far to make pictures and sell them on the internet from patreon or gumroad then it makes complete sense now on my perspective as a photographer that's a different story it's just it's all about agreements with the cosplayers in that sense of it which is why i've mentioned before i don't have desire to open a Patreon because a lot of people, because a few people have asked me, why don't you start a Patreon? It's mostly because of that. I feel it would be disingenuous or uh, not respectful to the cosplayers who I have worked with and the models I've worked with to do that. So, unless it comes from them, and it's the same thing for my print shop because a lot of you guys out there remember, I, I, and it's still probably still up online, but most likely I'll probably shut it down. But I, I, at one point had a um, print shop and it took me a while to realize especially from places on the internet that people stated you know we don't really buy physical copies of stuff of 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 cosplayers work anymore we mostly just get digital and at the same time some of them don't want to deal with all the paperwork of shipping and mailing some of those prints to the fans so when i had realized about that that's what i was like saying to myself well maybe this is not a good idea so that's why ladies and gentlemen My print shop hasn't been functionable for a long time. Now, for those out there who are fans of my work, you want to always want to print, just hit me up. I can personally do that for you. I've done that already a few times. So there's always that option. I just feel in this um, documentary that ET did, it was distasteful. I really feel it was a disservice to the community because we need to stop being barred to uh, discriminating on lewd cosplayers or cosplayers who are doing more sexualized of their work that because of that in the sense of that they don't deserve the respect I feel they deserve just as much respect as the cosplayers do Um, Vera Bambi who started out as a cam girl who still does camming every once in a while for her older fans has done legit costumes once in a while she's done a couple of lewd work for her case of it because of who she is And sometimes because of how she comforts herself, in a sense. But she has done some legit stuff. Like, there is one costume I remember she did that was amazing. Um, Her interpretation of Inspector Gadget is an amazing costume. Nothing revealing, a lot form-fitting in her sense of it, but it was a legit costume. Legit, complete with the hat and everything. I mean, she could have done a sexualized version of it because she's done a couple of sexualized costumes in some cases. But she's done legit stuff as well. Um, Sonia Relin, I believe her name is She was known for doing a very Amazing female version Of uh, the Green Power Ranger uh, costume She didn't wear less clothing It was just more form fitting her to her body That you could see she was a female And she got popular for it, that she's become Good friends with Jason David Frank himself The Green Ranger himself, Tommy Oliver Um, So But she's also has done Luke shots herself She recently just did a uh, very sexy bombshell uh, Wonder Woman photo shoot recently. So, again, we shouldn't judge these cosplayers who are doing lewd shots in the sense of it because they're doing sexualized versions of characters that we adore and admire. No, we shouldn't do that. We should appreciate them just as much as normal cosplayers. They just come from a different range of how they show admiration and love for a character if they want to show it at the same time of their physicality that's fine and at the same time sometimes those outfits and shoots that they do to make themselves look like that takes a lot of work not just from the photographer but from the cosplayer themselves and that's what we should also remember as well so this documentary was bad taste but i shouldn't i shouldn't be surprised because we're talking about entertainment tonight people Where 9 out of 10, they'll make juicier cossips, reviews about many things in the television and industry world of Hollywood. And it's always been that sense of it when it comes to entertainment tonight. So that's why I'm like, we shouldn't be surprised. It's entertainment tonight. It's the press. It's the press. They're going to always have that sense of it. Unless, like, there's a history channel or a documentary by a cosplayer themselves talking about it, which... The only, th- only documentary that I've really seen that really, truly respects a cosplayer in a sense of it is Rooster Teeth's documentary on Jessica Neekry, which if you have not seen that, you should definitely do. It shows that she's more than just a lewd cosplayer. She really has a love, love and admiration. I remember when I first found out about her, I was in California, and she got famous because of her famous Pikachu costume, her revealing Pikachu costume from WonderCon, which she recently resurrected. Um, and a lot of people... Didn't take her seriously after that outfit because they're like, this girl is an anime fan. She looks like normal, normal, typical high school popular girl. With blonde hair and her eye and makeup and everything, she looks like one of those popular girls who are attractive, who could be a cheerleader a sense Of it, and you look on her phone, on her wall, and this is way before she was with Ryan when she was living on her own. I guess she's got murals of comic books and anime, and anime uh, posters of video games and anime and such, and yet you still wouldn't want her to believe her. And it wasn't until years and years later, she started putting more detail in her costumes and her outfits that people were starting to realize this girl was legit. And I literally think if it wasn't for a simple thing as a costume contest from IGN, where I also found out about the magic of Greg Miller, Mr. Game Over Greggy himself, that I found out that it was because of that contest when she won that put her on the map. It was literally that contest. Um, because I was like, this girl really put in work with a Julia Star really, costume for Lollipop Chainsaw, and because of that, she won the contest and because of that alone I was just like, This girl's serious. She her trip to Tokyo and Japan, all the way to What she's done now, it shows how much admiration she is. She's not just a lewd cosplayer. She truly loves the craft. She loves the support she gets from people. She loves everything she's done. And I've told her to myself. (laughs) Um, For those who don't don't know, I, I met her three years ago at New York Comic Con. And I told her all this. I said from the moment she was in that contest as Juliet Starling to when I found out she was on the Philip DeFranco show as a guest at times, all the way to her stuff now, I have been admiration for her. I do have a lot of respect for her. And whether I don't work with her or I get to work with her someday, I still will show a lot of love and admiration for that woman. Um, She was one of the main reasons why I was happy to go to Arizona because I know in Arizona a lot of people in the cosplay and acting community and the modeling photography community flourishes there, which is why I knew I was set for life when I was down there. It was just, unfortunately, health situations that prevented me from staying there. And there's always another chance. So, But that's why, again, with documentaries like the one E.T. did, I just feel it's a distaste situation. So I would prefer not to watch that documentary, and I would suggest many people to do the same. Don't take that. And if you've seen that documentary and you've never known experienced cosplay, don't take that as an example, a true example of what cosplay community is about. We are not like that. It's only been recently because of situations that's happened outside of it, that people who uh, judge upon that community, that a lot of things, unfortunately, are happening in this community now negatively. And I don't want to get into the specific details of that, but just know, don't think that we're always going to be like that when it comes to it, no different than the modeling community. So I would advise a lot of fans out there, don't take that documentary as the true essence of cosplay experience it yourself the best way i always say is go to a convention experience yourself ask questions don't be afraid compared to models cosplayers have no problem expecting about it my one thing is is the one as a photographer and i can tell you one thing the three things a cosplayer loves to ask is how much work they put into the costume uh what is the costume of the, how much of a fan they are of the costume that they are of their dressing as and sometimes just geeking about how good the costume is. The moment you say those three things to a cosplayer, you can become good friends with them. Um a perfect example. I recently met a cosplayer by the name of Sparkle Stash cosplay. I met her because um she did an amazing female costume version of All Might from one of my favorite new animes, uh Bako no Hero Academia, or my hero academia. Now I've seen a lot of women do amazing cosplays of All Might, a male character in the show. But the one that stuck out for Sparkle Stash was her swimsuit version of the costume. She did an amazing job on the makeup on her side torso. Now, for those who've seen who've not seen the anime, All Might has a condition where his basically the side of his torso is damaged. So it really looks bad. She was able to emulate that through makeup and prosthetics on herself while wearing a two-piece bikini version of All Might's costume, complete with makeup and hair. She did an amazing job on this outfit. It's one of my favorites of her. And she's even gone to say it's most her most popular costume, that she's planning on doing a lot of variations of All Might costumes. She's done, um, she's done the full bodysuit. She's done a cheerleader version recently uh she's even done one with all might in his famous yellow two-piece suit recently for anime expo but she's done many variations for all might and she plans on doing more i've even given her a couple of ideas myself personally but for her in the sense of that outfit she did amazing job with the prosthetics on her torso area to pull it off because i've not seen a lot of females uh all Might cosplayers do even that in the sense of it which is amazing um uh, but I had to gush with her about that The fact that I told her I love the outfit The fact that I love the show That's why we, we, we've now become friends in a sense of it And that's the one thing I love about in that cosplay community Whereas in the modeling community You talk to a model in that sense of it it's, You're not going to get that same reaction That's one thing I've always stated about the cosplay community That I love about compared to the modeling industry Now there are a few models in the industry That break that mold But unfortunately, they either don't go so far or they're not getting a lot of recognition. That's how it is. But in the cosplay community, I've never seen a situation where it's like that. And if they have, I've not met them or I've not been a a man enough to meet them. Let's not forget, I, I do have still some anxiety on my side. So there are a few cosplayers that I've gotten to work with that I've not talked to. And there are a few cosplayers that I like that I've not met yet. And it's only because... It's always a nervous situation for me. And that's okay. That's always okay. Um, But again, it's a whole different aspect if you experience it. But I always tell people who've never gone to a convention or always want to get into cosplay, you got to go to experience it. The only way you can experience it is by going to it itself. So never take for granted on the sense of something as simple as a documentary on Entertainment Tonight, which more talks about uh a relationship from celebrities more than they talk about stuff in the comic book geek world i I don't take them seriously like i said this is entertainment tonight we're talking about um another situation speaking of dumb situations like that um i also want to bring up uh my personal two cents about what's been recently going on now uh now science fiction in the artificial intelligence and the intergalactic extraterrestrial worlds of admiration I've always liked. I have. But I don't understand this trend about going to Area 51. I, I put that right up there with the whole men showing women pics of their genitals in a sexual manner. I don't understand that. Am I missing out something here ladies and gentlemen? Uh, I, I just want to know. It's... Uh, I don't understand the jokes. I don't understand the memes of it. I... I I get it. I'm old, but you know what? It just seems like something that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, Then the other trend of the face app thing. Now, didn't we have a face app trend before? Last time I checked, it was women looking like men and men looking like women because of a face app on Snapchat. Now, that was a trend that I was interested in because I'm not going to lie. If I speak for all men out there to say that we look cute as hell as women because of that filter there are a lot of us men that look damn good as women in those filters (laughs) i'm not gonna lie there are a few women out there that look scary as men and there's a few women out there that be like you know what I, i look good we all had that buffalo bill moment when we looked at that when we looked at ourselves in the opposite gender because of that filter we all said it to ourselves let's not lie i do me we all said it so that's fine But I don't see the the whole thing about uh, uh, the uh, old app showing people in old ages. I just, I don't understand that. I'm old myself. I don't need to be reminded about that. (laughs) I really don't. I don't need to be reminded on the sense of my face is going to look a lot older in the age of it. That's the last thing I checked. I am starting to get gray hairs in my goddamn beard now. Last thing I wanna do is see me with wrinkles. Uh ain't happening. I'm lucky enough my father, I have my father's genes right now because my father is hitting sixty as of right now, and he still looks like he's in his mid twenties because of his how he take care of himself. I know I'm following that same trait. Same people. I've said it to many people before. We have the Will Smith gene. Because if you look at Will Smith, he don't look like he had turned a day under twenty. He looked like he's stuck in a time paradox. The only time you really see his age at a few moments is when he changes his look, when he shaves his, his facial hair and his hair off, or when he and lets his hair grow out, or when he's not wearing, uh, or when he dyes his hair a certain colors. That's when he shows his hair. But when he's naturally looking the way he does, nah, he still looks a little different. I have always saw that in Will Smith. That's why I tell people we're like vampires in the sense of it. So last thing I want is somebody to show me on an app that you're going to be older. It's no different than uh, I've I've said to people before, I'm like, uh, does nobody, especially to my black community out there, do do we, do we not, do y'all not remember we told white people the fact that um, black don't crack? So why do you need to use an app to show it? We don't need to. Honestly, I don't think, I've only seen a few of my fellow people in the color use that app. But mostly, 90% of the time, it's white people. Because again, black don't crack. We don't need to be reminded about how we're going to look old. We already know we're going to look the damn good as we are to how we take care of ourselves. Everybody from Della Reese to Cicely Tyson don't look no different than they are in a sense of it. From James Earl Jones to Ozzie Davis. You look at all of them a couple of gray hair whiskers and gray hair on their heads all that but they don't still look no different than they changed themselves of it. Hell, I didn't even know Samuel Jackson had had Regent had uh CGI age enhancement on his face in Captain Marvel. You could barely even tell that cuz he looked no different than he did years ago. I look at him when he was in uh Die Hard with a vengeance of Zeus no different than he does now and you wouldn't tell the difference especially when you got no facial hair so honestly i just don't see the whole thing on that trend of it but maybe it's because of me but those two trends alone just seem very pointless and i just felt i needed to get my two small two cents on that sense um also i want to bring up about um something that i also wanted to bring uh that i've actually been thinking about a long time now a lot of people out there if you have not checked online uh on a different subject um a lot of you people out there who followed me since 2009 might know at one point i dabbled in music um to this day i still promote some of my old music in a sense of it for those out there who always want to listen to it um My music has reached all the way back from 2009 since I became affiliated with the Star Chasers Collective, which is a group of artists who uh, were inspired by a a hip-hop artist named Charles Hamilton. And if you're familiar with the name Charles Hamilton, then you you don't need me to go any further. But if you do, if you're not familiar with Charles Hamilton, you can Google him. Charles Hamilton, Sonic the Hedgehog, you'll pretty much get a whole gist of his musical history and everything. Charles has had ups and downs in his career, but the one thing that he has always had was his main supporters who were influenced by his own music. And there are many people who were influenced by his music who have a major standpoint, some from a mar- from a larger independent standpoint. Uh, people from rappers like Mod Sun, uh, the guy who used to date uh, Bella Thorne, <laughs> to um, uh, Mickey Fax, uh, who was a battle rapper. Um, There are many artists in the hip-hop world who has been influenced by Charles Hamilton in the sense of it. And at one point, Charles wanted to help make a collective affiliates of people in that sense of it, and I was one of them. I started out in the production-specific ends of it, and that was back in 2005, 2004, when I dabbled in uh, Fruity Loops or FL Studio, like most producers in the game were. And I made a name for myself as a producer. Um, But then... I started trying to get myself elevated in writing because at the time, in 2008, 2009, I started realizing not a lot of artists with mental health issues were speaking out on the fact of how struggling it is to do music in a sense of it as an artist. And this was even before Joe Button was talking his stuff about his goddamn depression, which by the way, Joe Button don't represent all of us mental illness people. He can say that shit all he wants to. He don't represent all of us. So fuck him. Uh, But when it comes to a lot of music artists who have heavier mental issues like autism, not many people in the music game talked on that sense of it. hell. When there was a rapper, I remember once there was a rapper who was a transgender woman and a lot of flack got from her. And she's I don't think, has made any popularity because of that. Because unfortunately, the hip hop world has made it seem uh, more prejudiced in itself. Um, Whether it's race, mental health, religion, and in some points, gender. I do believe that the rap game has a homophobic problem. I really do. Um, And I still do to this day. I mean, hell, there's a lot of rappers who still used unfortunate derogatory terms in homosexuality. Even Eminem unfortunately um so i felt it was my initiative to at least speak as a person of that of that uh demographic in a sense of mental health to be the one to address on that sense of it because not even people understood charles hamilton's perspective as a person rapper of mental health because people didn't see that people saw him as just crazy they didn't see he has mental health issues they didn't see that side of him it wasn't until he was arrested in Cleveland, and he was locked up for a couple years in a lunatic asylum that he needed help mentally that addressed this situation. Because before that, people just saw he was just crazy. So while that was going on, I understood it. And I said, you know what? People are not saying what they should need to when it comes to his mental health. And there's now rappers out there with mental health that are expressing itself in their talent, sense. So I felt I needed to do that. So around 2011... I dropped my first vocal project called The World According To. And after that, about a year later, I dropped my follow-up, which was my honor to one of my favorite comic books and movies, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus The World. And then, of course, I released my last vocal project, Delta Nexus. Uh, all three of those projects you can get on my Bandcamp page. If you go to my uh, social media, you can find it on my Bandcamp page. They're all available as of right now. And... I want to take the moment to appreciate what I was able to do, limitedly, in that field, by doing something I've never done before. I'm going to be releasing a new project with unreleased uh, gems that I have kept under the vault of my own for a couple of years, um, and it will be only available on digital outlets. You will know when it comes out. I don't want to release the release date. But you will know. Originally, it was going to come out July 4th, but due to some technical issues, I dropped that release date. So it's going to be coming out this year. You will know when it comes out, when it comes out. <laughs> but it will be available for only digital retailers on iTunes, Spotify, uh, uh, Amazon, all those digital retailers. It will be available for everyone out there for purchase and streaming purposes. Um, so this is a project that I've always wanted to put out. I've wanted to put out since. 2008 and some of it derives most of the music in my career so you will definitely know about it when it comes out now when it comes to new musical projects brand new stuff that I've recorded in the sense of it I haven't had the motivation yet on that sense of it because of the fact that I've been so busy with my photography ends of it because again after I dropped Delta Nexus it was at one point I was working on a project called Sons of Anarchy and I slowly started Dealing with a burnout situation, I felt like not to be corny on a sense of it, but I do felt like um many people who were dealing with a lot of success and dealt with a burnout that they just felt like they won't do it anymore, and that's what it was with me with son of Anarchy. I was losing the the garb of it. I was getting a lot of opportunities for features with artists and such, but it was at a point I was just like I just don't have the luster for it anymore and it was getting to the point the music was changing too you know artists like young thug and um uh, blue and little bibby and uh, triple red and triple x and i'm sorry i'm one of the few people that's like i i'm not a fan of triple x i really am not uh X-Xacion. i i liked one song from him literally one song but i'm not a fan of his i and it's up to you if you want to agree disagree on that sense of it because i was the same way with, with little b I was not a fan of Little B at some points of it until I understood the message and what he was putting in his music, and I started listening to him more and more, especially with his I'm Gay album. Then I started appreciating him more. So it might take a project from him that changed that same way with me. Because the last person I will say that changed that for me in a sense of it was Post Malone. I didn't like Post Malone. And it wasn't until his second album that I started appreciating what he's doing. Because I'm like, honestly, I got a lot of respect for him. If you take away his look, you have to give him some respect because he's saying, hey, I could be a rapper. I could be a hip-hop artist if I want to. But I love music so much, I want to dive into so many other outlets in music if I have the opportunity given to me. That's why he does a little bit of rock. That's why he does a little bit of soul, a little bit of country in most of his music. He doesn't want to stay in one genre. A lot of people look at him crazy like that. But I'm like, you know what? No, he's doing what a lot of artists in rap want to do. I don't want to stick with just doing that. You look at rappers like Kid Cudi, Lupe Fiasco, B.O.B. Most of those artists, they don't want to stay in that same lane. They want to try other things. Little uh, uh, um, Post Malone is doing exactly that. He could be like nobody else in that same same lane, stay in that same lane. But he says, no, I'm going to go outside On that sense of it. That's why I got him a lot of respect. My only thing is just his appearance is what makes it difficult in that sense when you take his music seriously. If he didn't look the way he did, it would be a whole different outlet. And that's why I said. I look at him no different than most artists like Kid Cudi and Lupe and B.O.B. They don't stick in that same genre in sense of it. And just because they got famous in one genre, they're going to use that as an outlet to say, hey, I want to try other things in a sense of it. Let's not forget, Lupe did a rap group called Japanese Cartoon. Kid Cudi has a rap group called Wizard. Let's not forget that. B.O.B. put out a mixtape called B.O.B. versus Bobby Ray, where one side of it is all rap and the other side is pop music that he's written for years. It makes sense. So for all I know, Existential could be that same way for me, but it takes a mile. And while his passing is a disappointing situation, it might still take a little bit of something from his vault of music from over the years that might change that for me. I don't know. But as of right now, I just, it's not my thing. But um, because of the changed state of music is what really made me lose the luster and love of what I have. There have been moments I've written a few gem pieces once in a while because I'm in the zone and I just come up with it and the creativity. But when it comes to like working on a full length project, that's what really shorted it out. And I'm disappointed Son of Anarchy never got to be what it is. I wouldn't say it shelved. It was more of a development hiatus, let's just say um but hopefully this project that i'm putting out later this year will change that sense of it depending on how it goes as of right now um the only thing i've released is the re-release of insomnia because i released that digitally before that's a project i produced written myself during my um panic situation now as i mentioned before to people i wrote and recorded that song right around the time i was having a mid life uh, crisis anxiety attack so you have to take it for what it is and I know it seems like a song that seems like a sense of it but there's a reason why that's why I wrote the song it was a moment I was not able to sleep and I was having these dark moments in my head and dark properties and I'm not in that mode anymore I've had moments where I've been depressed I've had moments where I've had anxiety but I to that low point when I did that song I'm not in that mode anymore so if you under want to understand on that mentality of what I dealt with in that sense of it, I would advise you to listen to the song. And again, that song is available everywhere now. It's available now in that sense of it. And I appreciate uh, everyone who's had an opportunity to listen to it and let people know about that. Um, but the project that I'm working, that I'm putting out soon, later this year, hopefully will make up for that as well. Um, however, on the production side of things, I'm sort of starting to get a little itch in that production back because I've been watching a lot of production uh, documentaries and a lot of videos on YouTube on people making a lot of production beats. Um, one in particular was a video of a guy who was working on MPC drum machine, working on a beat in his car. And it was amazing how it sounded to the point that it became a viral trend that rapper Meek Mill asked to have the dude come to his studio to use that beat to record in and the guy was just a producer who just like you know i like making music just because i like making music and he has now gotten some exposure because of that so my hat's off to him on that sense of it and it's the stuff like that that i feel like you know what that it gives me that itch again now i'm not gonna lie I, i am limited to using musical equipment on some physical aspects but when it comes to certain limitations on programming and musical software that's a different story I always wanted, at one point, a musical interface for my production and such, like most big producers, but I never had the opportunity because of money reasons, but I was able to use what I had, no different than my photography, I don't have a 700, 800 camera and like a thousand dollars of equipment, but I have a $400 camera that I invested my life in, and I love to use it to make amazing pictures of what I have, and it's the same thing with my production. I may use a two hundred dollar musical software production on a computer. I might not be able to afford a three hundred dollar interface or programming uh, equipment, but with that two hundred dollar or a hundred dollar musical program software, I can damn sure put out something amazing that people will love. And most of my music on my band bandcamp proves that. I was able to put out productions that were inspired in the moment of what I was able to do. Uh, beautiful nightmare which was my very first release in musical production that i released out in the market i put out and i did that just because i wanted to people to know who i am and then when i did um i did pink and blue which was my production uh pink and blue and the awkward boyfriend ep both were production eps that i did in honor of charles hamilton because i was in love with charles musical sense of it because one thing i love about charles compared to artists like ninth wonder and dj Premier and kanye old kanye is when they sample old songs they do it just because the fact it sounds good whereas in charles so it's like i want to give appreciation for the artist that i'm using in that sample and that's what i was doing in a sense of it i was using songs that i loved to make these productions i wasn't just using any random song i could do that for any person song no one's ever heard of and then using it as a sense no i wanted to do songs with productions from sampled songs that I listen to on the side that I'm not listening to. Songs that I would find on my playlist that people have heard of, in a sense of it. And that's what I did with most of my music. And Charles understood that, which is why I appreciated him so much. One of the projects I remember I did was an uh, instrumental trilogy called uh, The Diary of U.A. Yase," which was based on a project that Charles was supposed to put out called The Diary of Alison Foster, which was a vocal project he was supposed to put out that got shelved. Um, It was a concept project, and uh, I did a concept project. But most of those songs that I sampled were music that many people didn't know I was a fan of. Um, Curly, who is a, um, uh, I believe she is a, um, uh, I forgot the country, uh, a a Bostonia, I believe she is. Uh, uh, She's not Ukrainian, but she's a Vastoria uh, music artist. She had put out one album on Def Jam, uh, Love is Dead, um, and she came out with a song called Walking on Air. And then since then, she's put out a lot of pop stuff recently. Um, uh, uh, Clark ill I believe the name of the band. It's a gothic Japanese Kai band that came out years ago. I used to listen to them. Black Veil Brides. Yes, the goth rock band Black Veil Brides with Andy Black. I used to listen to it when I was in college at one point of it. Um, uh, I believe I sampled a few records from um, from AFI as well. Um, Evanescence. I still love Evanescence. Amy Lee is a goddess to me. I sampled records from her albums, from their unreleased hits, including Origin, the first album they've never put out majorly, to their last album they put out. I've done musical projects from all. I've done musical projects sampling all this stuff. And it was all in UA, I gotta say, because it fit the tone, but they were all based on the fact of my mental state listening to those music, all that music, and it worked with the story. So, and I love doing stuff like that. And when it came to instrumental projects, the only person I know who still does it to this day is my homeboy Storm at Watkins. Uh, shout out to Storm Watkins, um, who's an amazing producer. Uh, he still to this day has put out a lot of work In music production to this day um, I've even contributed To some of his work as an artist uh, Visual artist uh, Some of the covers from his projects I've, You might be familiar with um, I believe uh, This Broken Life Certainly um, uh, There's a few others that I've done Over the years that uh, I remember that I uh, uh, Contributed to um most of his musical projects i uh contributed to in his uh discography i'm actually pulling up some of his work right now to remind myself um stormatic which is a musical project that he did in honor of illmatic i did the cover for that album um what other project let's see um i did um uh, hold on, give me a minute Give me a minute <laughs> um, I did the cover for Certainly Where he samples music from Erica Badu um, I did the cover for uh, Status Updates Which is a project he uh, Production project where he samples songs From uh, none other than Justin Bieber I, I kid you not, Justin Bieber um, But one of the projects That I remember he did the most That I had sort of a playful rivalry with him Is The Maiko Kaiji Project. Now, for those who are familiar with Kill Bill, uh, there's a Japanese uh, uh, lore art musician back in the early years named Maiko Kaiji. Very, very popular pop singer. Um, I believe the term is, genre is Inca music. She's known for doing that, like old folk Japanese music. If you listen to those old folk Japanese music that you see in like those Hong Kong movies and such like that, she was known for that in most of her music um and storm walkins was very admiration for her and he had done um i think five projects based on her uh and they all sampled her music um um but yeah Michael kaiji um yep she's appeared in a 100 films almost she's known for straight crowd rock series shadow blood nami mashumi but yeah she's known for doing a lot of music as well um but yeah she's a very japanese act famous japanese actress and singer but lady snowblood is the one um for those out there who know lady snowblood was also one of the many movies that inspired uh Orenishi, the character played by lucy Liu on kill bill uh, you know, Japanese swordswoman, badass with a blade, looking beautiful in a kimono. Same character in a sense of it, except she's a villain uh, in uh, Kill Bill. Uh, it was, but it was also one of the many films that inspired Quentin Tarantino for it. So, uh, Storm did a project series, I believe four or five of them, where he basically was inspired by that. And so, I did uh, the project. To emimic that a little bit, but at the same time, uh, showing a little bit of playful rivalry and a little bit of um musical in, uh, inspiration from uh Storm, and it was called the Utada Ultimatum. Now, for those out there who are not familiar with the Utada Ultimatum, allow me to break it down for you. Uh, Utada Ultimatum was a musical project series that I did in the midst of my vocal career where I wanted to do musical uh, projects that were... It was a musical project where I was basically sampling one of my favorite Japanese pop artists of the early 90s, Hikaru Utada. Now, that name should be very familiar, especially to you Kingdom Hearts fans because that's what made her very popular in the mainstream industry in America. Utada or Hikisan, san the true fans know was famous because she was done for doing the musical themes for uh every Kingdom Hearts game out I believe Simple and Clean being the first one Sanctuary or uh, uh Sakura which was the second one and she's done ones for all of the go- all the at least the main Kingdom Hearts movies the games she's also done for um Neon Genesis and Galeon as well um So when it came to her Getting recognition for those songs Um She has actually a very large Broad discography Uh She went under another name Uh years ago Um Uh I believe it was um She put out an album called First Love Um but yeah, no, she went under the name uh, Cubic, Cubic C CU. U, um, and she went under the uh, and the first album she put out was called Precious. But then she used her real name in 1999 on an album called First Love. This would be her first album, of American I mean. Americanly. But it wasn't until 2001 where she put out Distance that made her a household name. Uh at least in japan but 2002 that was the album that made our recognition 2002 and 2006 2002 she put out an album called deep river and in 2006 ultra blue ultra blue would be the album that would be a hit billboard charts top singer album in america despite it being only originally released for japan it was around that time liar cohen the check writer himself at def jam uh uh i believe him and kevin lyles who was running def jam at the time uh decided that they wanted to get an international approach and this was right around the same time rush hour was coming out rush hour 2 so they offered her a american deal with def jam and that's when she put out her first american album which would be called uh exodus 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 uh Timbaland would be involved in that project as well as uh tricky stewart and the dream um unfortunately that album didn't do so well because not many people knew who Utada was in america with the exception of the few who knew her from japan so uh that album didn't do so well however she would go back to japan and put out of course ultra blue but it was after deep river she gave it successful after she became six, also because Deep River, she got the contract for America for Exodus. That album didn't do so well. So then she went back to Japan, put out a two, an album two years later, Ultra Blue, which became very, very successful. Uh, after that album, she would put out um, an album in Japan called Heart Station, which she would be prepped for. But at the same time, she also released another album because she was under still contract with Dev Jam. That would be the album, This Is the One. Which would be considered her last official American album After that album She would just stick with doing albums exclusively in Japan That became Heart Station Which became successful And then of course that would go on to do other albums Such as um, The Tomi Hatsu, And Hatsukoi Which is her latest album Which I will be getting soon um, But When it comes to her, uh, her work I've always been uh, uh, Admiring of all of her music so, I decided I wanted to sample most of her songs from her projects in that particular uh, discography. Um, so I put out a project called the Utada Ultimatum. Now, I've released three proje- four projects under that title, in that sense of it. Um, the first one did very mediocrity well, and I went under my old alias of RH the Nightmare around the time. But then, uh, I believe, a year later, I put out another one. I put out Chapter 2. That one did not so well, but that was also the one that decided to change my name to Yoko Masaki, which was my pen name, of course, as I am known for today. Um, but at the time, I used to go by RH the Nightmare. <laughs> and then, um, uh, which I'll tell you a story about it some other time, there's a reason why I had to change that name, because there was a lot of misconfusion on that sense of it. Um, then... Um, Uh, After that album, uh, my birthday, I believe on my birthday, uh, around that time, uh, no, I believe March, March of 2012, I would put out Chapter 3. That one became my most popular project ever. Um, However, I won't lie, my first one made popular because I sampled um, Sanctuary. And right around that same time I put that project out... (laughs) A rapper named Xv put out a mixtape, and he actually sampled the same song. <laughs> so it kind of got overlooked. Some people were telling me how he was biting me. Some people were saying I was biting him. A whole situation on that sense of it. And I, I don't have no dis- ill will on him on it. Um, chapter two, I uh, album two, I sampled another one of her popular songs in that sense of it. Um, but that one didn't do as big as Chapter one did. Um, however. Chapter three, I was able to elevate my production a lot better. Um, And then after that one, I put out the last project. In anniversary of those three albums, I put out chapter four. Now, chapter four was different about that one. Well, actually, chapter one, I just took some of the name of the album of the tracks on the names and just reevaluate them a sense of it. Chapter two, I did pretty much the same thing on that sense of the names Chapter 3 The track listing Was actually just Days in the week Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Thursday, Friday Chapter 4 Is the largest Out of all the Utada Ultimatum projects That I did And that one I did A lot of refining into um, And this was right around the time I actually found out She was doing music For the rebooted Or reimagined Galleon movies um, She uh, I did a, What I decided to do in that project Is I worked with Four other producers who all affiliated with me as well. And they all did productions sampling Utada as well. Um, a rapper by the name of a guy by the name of Daniel Ochoa, who at the time was named D Prince. I don't know what he's called now. I think he's probably called DI36 or something. He's with a, uh, um, a collective group now that's with Melvin Birch and such. So they kind of distance themselves from me, um, as well. um, a producer by the name of TZ Jetson, who I've distanced myself due to some creative differences, unfortunately. Um, a friend of mine, a guy named um, Michael, who went under the name Akil Hikari, who was trying to make himself, who was making himself known as a producer, who uh, has a, retired, I'll just say. Um, a, and then um, an artist who I'm still affiliated with, but who has somewhat sort of distanced himself from music as well, by the name of Blank October, who was also part of my collective group uh, when I, before Jirai Media, uh, was founded. Um, these five guys I worked with on the project, and they all contributed to different versions, productions of their al- of the album for songs in dedication to Utada, and I think that was my favorite one because it was all in the fact of I released it. 2012. Of, I, I think I released it 2013, 2014. It was in uh, it was in honor of the last three I did. Um, recently, and many of you may not have known this is while I have listened to and had owned digital copies of most of Utada's discography, I have not had the pleasure of owning physical copies of Utada's discography. And as I mentioned before, 2017, 2018, Utada San. Uh, uh, has released two projects uh, 2016's Fatomi And 2018's Hasukoi And trust me I've listened to both of those albums And it's got me A little bit inspired again So That leads me to my question For those out there listening Who have been fans of my work again If I was able to re- If you, if I was able to release An Tata 5 A final actual goodbye because honestly utada 4 wasn't supposed to be the last one utada 4 was an anniversary project but utada 5 if i released a utada 5 would you be considerate of that and that's what i want to know from you guys if you want to now this is a pro this is something that's probably be worked on not this year but probably down the line it will take a while if the demand is great this will be exclusively released. It won't be out there for everyone in a sense of it. And this will be the one time I work on a project that I feel like it gets my bearings back. But again, this is only if the world demands it. Now, if you're hearing this right now in this episode, on this podcast, again, uh, let me know. Whether you can tweet to me, you can tell me online, social media, tag me in a sense of it, but let me know if you want me to do an Utada 5. I will address this again on my YouTube channel, and I probably will address this again on my other social media if that's the sense of it. But for those out there who have been familiar with my work, if I do an Utada 5, would you consider supporting it? Would you think it would be a good idea if I do an Utada 5? This is something I've been thinking about for a long time, since actually since uh um since Hatsukoi came out because some of the stuff that Utada has been putting out since then because again after she put out I believe um after she put out uh, uh I believe after uh she put out 2009's uh This Is The One and then of course Heart Station she took some time off because she had just got married and had a kid so Fatomi and Hatsukoi are her comeback albums actually uh, since Hatsukoya has been out for last year uh, I think she's been on tour in a sense of it so she has not put out a lot of new music since then in a sense except with silent sound- soundtrack scores of course with, uh, with the exception of Kingdom Hearts 3 since it came out last year but again, she has inspired me in many ways because I admire her so much and not to mention she is such an attractive woman and also, tidbit for those out there Aaliyah fans Aaliyah was one of her favorite American singers. She even got a chance to meet Aaliyah when she came to Japan, toured Japan. So a little tidbit out there for you Aaliyah fans. And that's another angle I might want to go into with Utada 5. Dip a little bit of Aaliyah and Utada. But that might not be the case depending on how you guys react to it. So I'm going to leave that up to you. So Utada 5, maybe, maybe not it's up to the world for y'all to know it's up to you guys on that sense of it um another thing i also want to bring up is um many of you have recently knew if you follow me on twitter that i've been sort of dipping myself back into wrestling again and i'm thinking i already talk about a lot of other stuff on this podcast you know i talk about music i talk about comic books video games such as faces and uh on some in certain cases um Anime to some extent, which I will be getting back into hopefully when I start making the rounds of returning in my music and uh, my podcast again. Um, and I'm thinking about adding wrestling to the mix now. I won't be doing a lot of covering of certain events, and it won't be just WWE. Let me make that very clear I am not going to be the WWE stand out there in the sense of that. Um, there will be moments that I'll be bringing up information about impact wrestling. There may be some points I may talk about Ring of Honor. There may even be some moments where I'll bring up about AEW, because I'm really looking forward to AEW. Um, And sometimes I may even do some throwback coverage, like classic matches in that sense of it. Talk about those. Um, One of my roommates, who's also a wrestling fan myself, I may even get involved uh, in some of the discussions depending on how things go. Um, So that might be the sense of it when it comes to uh, that, but if you guys want me to bring that up as one of the topics in many of the senses of episodes on this podcast, let me know because that might be one of the senses for me in the sense of this podcast. Uh, because again, I want to maximize this podcast to the opportunity to talk about a lot of things that I enjoy. That's what this podcast is about. Um, that's why I have to remind myself. I can't always have to have a second person with me in this podcast because I want you guys to hear what I talk about in that sense when it comes to this podcast. It's not just about me with somebody else discussing the things. It's me addressing to you who gives a shit and listening to my two cents. That's what I want to do. It's easier for me to do it this way than just sitting in front of a camp, my web camera and talking to you guys on that sense of it. Sometimes that's hard to do, but sometimes that will happen. Um, so let me guys know about that as well so if it does it might come to the point like I said I'll be bringing up about a lot of things in the cosplay community uh, in the wrestling community as well as cosplay photography and all that sense of it I do talk about photography in a sense of you know um also I want to every once in a while what I want to do is uh, starting next year I want to do um, a prince moment now a lot of you guys out there know I'm a big fan of Prince And for those asking, yes, I did purchase the Prince Originals album, which just came out this year. Um, I realized that every year around Prince's anniversary since his passing, um, Warner Brothers and his estate has allowed the opportunity to release music from his vault. Last year, it was um, the 1983 Prince uh, Piano and a Microphone album, which featured piano and microphone acapella records of... Uh, some of his songs from purple rain to 17 days. Um, and this year in the vault uh, was the originals album. And this is where he uh, has recording versions of most of the songs he's known for writing for other artists from artists, such as the family, the time, uh, Apollonia six, vanity, six, Sheila E. Um, Kenny Lo- Rogers. Yes. I kid you not. He's written a song for Kenny Rogers, the bangles, The Walk Like Egyptian uh, bangles, and of course It features the first the one song that On here that he has Been known for writing that Of course many people know that was released Right around the time that uh, Piano and Microphone 1983 Came out was of course his version of Nothing Compares to You now He's done a version of that Song way before after He even sold the song to Sinead O'Connor He did a version on I believe The Gold Experience However, there's never been an original copy of the song when he first wrote it. It's on this album, Prince Originals. Um, But again, most of the songs that are on this album are all songs that he's written for other artists. But they've never been released to the public. This is one of the many songs from the vault. This and the piano and a microphone are both albums that we officially get from his vault in his estate. Um, So, of course, I had to purchase them. (laughs) <laughs> While I do have some of his other stuff from over the years So I'm thinking about doing a side thing on my podcast called uh, "The uh, From the Vault Or uh, basically uh, uh, a, pre- uh, a period in Paisley Park I want to call it And I want to do it every once a year around April A few days before my birthday around the same time of his passing And I want to do that every year in his honor because I want people to understand I'm not just a fan glorified fanboy of Prince's music. I truly deeply, not only was I truly deeply inspired by his stuff, but most of his musical stuff uh, connects to me in many ways. Like I said, the fact that him, Batman, Kevin Smith, and Tim Burton all are in the same connection circle of my love and admiration of what I love and stuff in a twist of fate, says something so I feel it's only right and it's my obligation but not like but I want to in bringing that up in the sense of it but let me guys know if you want me to do that in the sense of it because I would love to give you my two cents or my love of my review and opinion on many of his work whether it's albums songs movies he's done songs he's done for other projects whatever it might be uh, or even artist artists that he's worked on that I've really not listened to because honestly, I've only stuck myself with listening to just stuff from Prince I've really never dibbled into any of his artists from Paisley Park, I'm not gonna lie didn't really listen to the day at the time, never listened to The Family never listened to Apollonia 6 or Vanity 6 with the exception of Nasty Girl <laughs> that's the only song I've actually known of them uh, Sheila E to some extent Jill Jones is literally the only artist I've actually listened to in a sense of his of his of who he's worked with and that's because <clears throat> I'm not going to lie. I had a crush on her ever since Purple Rain. If you told me a girl who was as attractive as Marilyn Monroe, who actually can sing. And as the vocals aspects of Tina Marie, who I believe Prince probably worked with as well. And she dressed like Madonna in a, some extent. That would freak me out. That was Jill Jones, ladies and gentlemen. That was Jill Jones, around the time. I mean, right around the revolution time, not New Power Generation time, because around that time, Graffiti Bridge and such. She dyed her hair. She started looking more like seductive in a sense of it. But during her cute, sexy phase, the first person that came to my mind was Marilyn Monroe, Tina Marie. The the body and look of Vera Monroe. The vocals of Tina Marie. And yeah, yeah, that's literally what came to my mind for her. And the style of Madonna. That's literally what came to my head when I first saw her in Purple Rain as the as the as the um uh the one rach twist who uh basically pinned up uh Apollonia Katara's uh information on the chalkboard. Ever since then I've had such a huge crush on her and that character. I follow her on Twitter and our social media and she let's just say she's been more open vocally in their sense of it other than that sense than what she's used to do but i'm not gonna lie her daughter's very cute but the closest person i've known who are like that is a friend of mine named janine Monroe, who's an arizona uh model and then my good friend Corinne carey who is a very talented singer however she has not looked apart if she looked more like her she could look like her in a sense of it but she's more in a vocal sense which by the way By the time you hear this, she's actually putting out music herself. So congratulations to Kareen. So, with that being stated, um, I think that's pretty much gonna be it for today's episode on the podcast. I thank you guys for sticking around with me for the last two hours in this whole thing about it. I've addressed three topics that could be talked about, three situations that could be talked about in the next episode and such of it. Again uh the kitty quinn episode if i can put it up if i can get it to work out i will be putting it up soon if not you will see a future episode with that again so again apologies to kitty quinn on that on the delay in that situation again technology has not been good to me for these last few moments in that situation thank you guys for sticking with me on that whole situation of that um as for news on the situation of contentions as i mentioned before by the time you get this, yoma and Katsukan are the only cons that I am going to be hopefully trying to attend. If neither of those conventions, as always, you will see me at kalasa in Sandusky if things go the way they are. Um, other than that, I will let you know on my social media. If you want, follow me on my social media at twitter.com slash yokumasaki to follow me for all my photography and information. You can also follow me on my Instagram, instagram.com slash media, if you want to check out most of my work in my gallery. Um, also, as always, you can check out my official website for all my photography. If you're in the area and ever interested in working with me and my photography, jiriamedia.com for all your photography needs. Uh, thank you for everybody out there who has been still supporting me since day one. Also, um, in the process of, I will be hopefully making a transition to having my podcast available on Anchor the app anchor which is a podcast anchoring network uh if you have the anchor podcast app you can officially listen to my podcast there my podcast is available on all other social media but you can also get it available on my podcast uh on the anchor app so now you can officially get it there um so just remember that the anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or your computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds perfect. They'll even distribute your podcast for you as well on all social uh, digital retailers such as Spotify, Apple, Google, and many mother mores. Uh, you can find out more information about that at Anchor's website. Uh, you can also go to uh, Anchor. Dot FM if for more information about it, or you can download Anchor itself, available on all on all digital retailers, at like Google, Apple, and, uh, uh, and and of course on other ones. If you want to check that out, um, like I said, all the episodes will be available there as well. I also know there are two episodes on my podcast that I have uploaded that have had error vocal issues. I will be hopefully getting those fixed soon. You will find out more about that later. In some cases, um, aside from that. Um, uh, as for vacation trips in the sense of it I only have one uh, Two, two uh, planned trips um, Chicago is a maybe This year depending on how things go But Cleveland as always In the summer I will be in Cleveland For a limited time This time I will be joining my friend Danny From, uh, Danny Vreen from the YouTube channel Editing is everything Congratulations to her and her fiance John on their engagement If you saw her at VidCon I hope you gave her a lot of love And support Uh, Shout out to the entire uh, Good Mythical Morning crew Shout out to Rhett and Link For being her very big inspirations I may not have been Much up to y'all channel And myself a bit, But you have been Truly supportive for her So thank you guys For giving her the motivation In what she does And shout outs to Danny Thank you for taking the time To come with me last year Come all the way down here To Toledo To work with a guy like me And becoming a good friend of mine And supporter as well Um, Also congratulations To my good best friend Brittany Berry And her engagement as well uh, so make sure y'all send a lot of love to both of them uh, You can go to Danny's uh, Twitter page uh, The Real Editor And you can show some support to Barry By checking out her website Uh Or check out anything around the words "Glovation." Send her a lot of love as well um, Other than that ladies and gentlemen I think that's going to be it for my podcast tonight Thank you for sticking around Thank you for listening And hopefully I'll be back sooner than you expected And as always, until the next time, Lady Days.